Thank you and good morning. It's good to be back and see all of you once again. Many familiar faces. It's part of the uh, point of these exercises of pulpit swaps so that you all get to see another Unitarian Universalist minister and we get to see another congregation. Uh, each one of both of those varieties are always unique and interesting. And so thank you for having me here today. The, um, the theme of the month that we all worked on together, hopefully some of you I think contributed to the uh, online survey that we did last year. Uh, so the theme of the month this month is justice. And that's a, what I call a meta theme, one of these themes that emerged and repeat throughout the year. So there are three of those, community, spirit, and justice. So we're in justice right now. And then the particular theme is voices of the voiceless. And that's actually a, a, a pretty difficult theme for me. I'm a little irritated with it, in fact. Which is funny because I helped formulate that. <laughs> um, but so did you. So, um, But voices for the voiceless, you know. It, it sounds, when I start to think about it a little bit more, uh, you know, what doesn't have a voice? And so this sounds to me a little bit like um, a, a patronizing position. As though we're supposed to, to know the voices that other people, those fools over there, aren't hearing. But we have the divine ear to hear. And it's probably true. There are voices that we hear that others don't. But if that's true, there's the transitive math, right? Is that what it's called? I'm a minister, not a mathematician. So, so the transitive property of math would let us know that there are probably voices that other people hear that we don't hear. And in fact, I would put it to you that every being has a voice, an expression at any rate, voice being a metaphor for expression. And so we need to first and foremost consider not the voices that we hear that others don't, but the voices that we don't hear. This is not a self-congratulatory opportunity. This is an opportunity for self-reflection, right? And taking it another step further, what are the voices within ourselves that we don't hear? That's the real trick. Because as long as you're not listening to your own voices, as long as you're not listening to the voices inside, or perhaps you hear them, probably you hear them, and are just pushing them away. That is an exercise that you engage in every day that will not help you listen to others. So in the spirit of self-examination and in the spirit of the, the subject, voices of the voiceless, because I think when that was uh, determined, uh, nobody was asking for a sermon on self-reflection. They really wanted something, or you all, or we all really wanted something a little bit more uh, politically oriented. So I will not disappoint. <laughs> but you will probably not like it. 
you know, so when we're, we're there are a number of, of, of political entities and um, persons and beings and circumstances that have a voice that is difficult to hear. And the one that was on my mind most recently was that of our planet, that of our changing climate. And this is not actually a voiceless voice. This voice is screaming. All right? But um, I don't know how many folks are actually listening. So I'm thinking about our relationship with the planet. And generally, uh, it's not good. If we were treating each other the way we are treating our biosphere, we would be in jail. Because we're killing it. So you go to jail for that. Or at least we're killing its capacity to sustain humanity. Pretty important. And millions of other creatures as well. And the effects are, are all encompassing. And why wouldn't they be? Our climate is the foundation of our existence. It is the cornerstone. Mess it up and we see an increase already in desperation migration, in war, in respiratory disease, and in diseases spread by insects. So it's happening right now. The consequences are occurring. We see health issues related to our food and water systems, plus heat and weather cause fatalities and species endangerment happening now. And if this climate change is human cause, which is not really open for debate anymore, then there is no way, no way around the notion that we are culpable in this system of death. We are culpable by our participation in systems that destroy our biosphere. So these include food systems, transportation systems, political systems, energy production systems. Any system that has to do with resource development and deployment. And all of that falls under the larger aegis of our economic system. So there's a uh, documentary that's either recently been released or it's coming out very, very soon. And one of you even has the book I saw when you walked in. Uh, Naomi Klein's This Changes Everything. So in that uh, documentary, and I imagine in the book also, um, Naomi Klein, who has written a number of, of, of books, she's a journalist who writes about political e economies, economies um, and their consequences. She writes, our economic system and our planetary system are now at war. Or more accurately, our economy is at war with many forms of life on Earth, including human life. Our economy is at war with you. So because we affirm interdependence and because we participate in our economic system, it's math again, therefore, we are implicated. But is it our fault? 
No. The system is not your fault any more than slavery was the fault of those slave owners who were born into their station. Of course, did that lessen the sin? A major problem is that our entire social structure, our economy, our government, and the way our cities are built rests on the very functions that are destroying our mother. And we are beginning to see the cost. We, we see it in New Orleans and Galveston. We see it in wildflowers that plague the western U.S. every year. We see it in the water levels of Lake Powell and the drought that is hitting the most productive strip of land on the planet in California. And that is just what we see. Here's a truth. The most effective, affected people are the least responsible for the cause. Meanwhile, the least effective, affected, the least affected are the most responsible. Do you know who that is? Actually, that's the people who deny climate change, right? And I don't mean in just their rhetoric or politics. There are people who, of course, do deny climate change and also live in denial that it is happening. And, then in this, and this is what has me really aggravated. There are people who understand that it is happening, who, who don't deny it with their words, who understand that it is happening, but live in denial of it. And by that, by that, I mean the most politically liberal people in the United States. And by that, of course, I mean us. So the other side, the other others, who are denying climate change and then going out and living in denial of it, you know, at least they haven't also lost their integrity. Yeah, that's <laughs> So we espouse great concern, but we live as though there is no need to make a difference or, or that what we do makes no difference. And yet we also affirm and promote the interdependence of all existence as a core thread of our faith. And then we have the gall to castigate other religions and people for their hypocrisy. No. No and no. We have no right. But what's a little old UU to do in the face of the entire economy? See, and here's where things spin up and spin down right quick. Spinning up. Wealth has been outrageously concentrated at the top percentage points of our economy. A concentration of wealth leads to a concentration of power, which in turn protects, quite naturally, the concentration of power. Our financial, oil, and food resources are in the hands of a very few people and corporations. And so it has come to pass that we live in a national plutocracy where the wealthy have wildly disproportionate effect on our government and our lives. 
And as Klein observes, we are stuck because the actions that would give us the best chance of averting catastrophe and would benefit the vast majority are extremely threatening to an elite minority that has a stranglehold over our economy, our political process, and most of our major media outlets. In other words, the engine that drives climate change is the same engine that sustains the wealth of our demagogues. So it's their fault, right? Well, spinning down to the engine that sustains us, the engine that sustains all people, however, reveals our culpability. The engine that sustains us, one of them anyway, and all of them are beset by climate change, the engine that sustains us is food. Just as climate is the most comprehensive thing, what we eat is the most fundamental And they and we are all intimately related. So our hypocrisy, our culpability is revealed on our dinner plates. And there is one outlying entree that is, you'll forgive me, prime in its negative impact on our planet and our bodies. Considered as a whole, the agriculture for the production of livestock is responsible for nearly 20% of all greenhouse gases. Actually, I read some numbers that came out after I'd written this that would reduce that a little bit. Uh, so whereas before it was actually had a larger footprint than automobiles, it now has about the same imp imp footprint as automobiles. Agriculture consumes 85% of drinkable water, mostly for livestock. 85% of water goes to meat. Now that includes grains that are used to feed the meat. According to the Government Accountability Office, an estimated 1.6 million tons of animal waste is created in the U.S. alone. This waste creates unsafe levels of antibiotics, phosphorus, nitrogen, and other things in our soil and drinking water. So we're polluting ourselves. It's 130 times more crap than humans make. But ours is regulated. Eighty percent of the 1.3 million tons of pesticides are used for crops that go to feed livestock. And that's a direct um, line drawn between them and the chemical companies, Monsanto, and their ilk who produce genetically modified corn that resist um, all uh, or who are, can survive a certain kind of pesticide, and so therefore they just blast it with these pesticides. So, 
don't eat non-organic corn. That's a tip. That's just a free tip. So meat is transported with oil, packaged in oil. Fertilizer is made of oil. The foundation of agriculture has actually switched from soil to oil. And livestock accounts for about seven times the deforestation of sprawl and urbanization. I'm sorry. Let me say that again. Livestock accounts for seven times the deforestation the amount of deforestation as sprawl and urbanization. So beasts' environmental impact, particularly, dwarfs by 10 times that of other meat, including chicken and pork. 10 times. Now, an aspect of that is, according to the Sierra Club, that same amount of water that produces one pound of beef could produce 16 pounds of broccoli, 25 pounds of potato, and enough soybeans for three pounds of tofu, or enough wheat for nearly five pounds of whole wheat bread. By the way, soy is also the, the uh, food that is, unless it's organic, it's, it's basically genetically modified. So if that's a concern for you, organic corn and organic soy. Because we feed our animals soy. So there's a lot of it. Uh, so our beef consumption robs us of the water that it then pollutes. Our beef consumption uses food that could be feeding people. Our beef consumption destroys forests and creates greenhouse gases, which warm the planet, contribute to drought, and lead to massive forest fires that are too big for us to control. And we've seen a number of those in our own state. So I guess that's a pretty uh, efficient system if you're a cattle company, though. I mean, forest fires are good for business. Oh, and our beef consumption houses and kills living beings in ways that would make most sane people lose their appetite. Now, I, w I do want to draw a distinction between a local cattle rancher and a factory farm. I'm talking particularly about the factory farmers. Or I just should say the, the factory farm corporations. So Professor Tim Bitten of the University of Leeds tells us that the biggest intervention people could make toward reducing their carbon footprints would not be to abandon cars, but to eat significantly less red meat. The biggest intervention people could make toward reducing their carbon footprint would not be to abandon cars, but to eat significantly less red meat. So perhaps some of you are getting a little hot under the collar right now. I don't know why, but I do know that food really does touch our emotions. If I said to, the key to reducing greenhouse gases is to use less toilet paper squares, no problem. But if I start talking about beef, someone's going to get angry. And if you're angry, that should indicate something to you. And I think it has to do with this next bit. You see, the really revealing part, the really painful part, is that we already know this. I've said it before from my own pulpit. I'm sure you've heard it on the news. You've seen it online. 
Now, we are Facebook believers, but dinner plate deniers. And if we deny the impacts of what we do every day, if we deny the pain that is produced by that slab of flesh, the planet, the animal, our own bodies, and our fellow humans, if we deny something so fundamental to our living, then we are the climate change deniers. And worse, if we can deny, and look, and this is true, worse, there's worse. If we can deny all of that as a culture, and we absolutely do, then we get practice at denial with every meal. We personally and as a culture sustain ourselves on denial. You wonder why all the garbage that's going on right now can go on right now with just sort of coffee and tea outrage over it? That's upsetting. It's because self-delusion is our dinner guest. Self-delusion, if self-delusion is the key to human evil, then denial is an oft-used tool in maintaining that self-delusion. And with such religiously observed practice, maybe every meal, maybe every meal, we get pretty good at it. We are hulks of denial. It becomes so easy then for our culture to deny other truths that are apparent, but do not fit the violent narrative of our self-conceptions. Our self-conceptions generated themselves by the fear of our own weakness and contemptibility. And so we have drone strikes, active shooters, disproportionate killing of black men by the officers of the state, death threats against my colleagues for saying what I just said, the militarization of police, the militarization of religion, the killing of aid workers, the killing of homosexuals and transsexuals, the drought in California, the fires this summer in Washington, the corruption of democracy in our country, the gutting of education, the utter gutting of education in our state, the present oligarchy and the willful destruction of the animal and human habitability of this planet. We can deal with that. We eat that every day. We are surrounded by and enmeshed in violence that has nothing to do with survival. These are the symptoms of a culture proficient in denial. That my integrity is corrupted by my caughtness in our system is infuriating. And it is almost impossible to disentangle myself entirely from the cause of my corruption. But in no way does this impossibility afford me the fantasy that denial provides. 
Just because I feel like I can't do anything about it doesn't mean that I could afford to look away. I must always look at my corruption straight in the face. And if we cannot do it all, we must do what we can, and revealing our denial and seemingly intractable implicatedness should provide enough motivation to do just that. I hope so. You remember there's, a, there's an African um, folktale about a forest fire and all the animals gathered around a river where it was safe. And they all fretted about what to do. And the hummingbird then started to fill its beak up with water and go over the fire and drop it in and come back. And it's got another hummingbird beak full of water and went and dropped it on the fire and kept doing this. And eventually the animal said, what are you doing? And the hummingbird said, I am doing what I can. Now, there is something that we can do, and it's actually quite easy. It costs nothing. It actually puts more money in your pocket. Stop eating beef. You can't bike everywhere, although I encourage biking. You can't bike everywhere. You can't give up cars or electricity. But this choice requires of you nothing but commitment. Nothing but love, nothing but looking denial in the face. In fact, it saves you money. It saves you lives and pain. The life and pain of a factory cow. The lives and pain of those most affected by climate disruption. And it saves your life. It saves your life. It helps save the planet. And it's a punch in the nose to the system that profits off the destruction of our planet. That undifferentiated system of oligarchic capitalism. That system that profits off the destruction of our planet, our families, our world community, and ourselves. It is a punch in the gut. So if you take good pleasure in eating a nice piece of steak, I could replace that pleasure with the vindictive pleasure of punching Monsanto in the nose. It's, I don't know. I don't know if Gandhi would like those <laughs> metaphors, but... So here is the restorative irony of our own culpability. This is the restorative part, right? This is the redemptive part of this sermon. Our investment in the systems that are destroying our planet, our investment in those systems actually do give us power. You see, culpability equals power when it is infused with atonement. Culpability equals power when it is fused with atonement. If you want to take back control of our food supply and therefore of our economy, stop eating beef. If you want to do what you can to combat climate change, which very much includes taking back the food supply because the food supply is rooted in the pesticide and petroleum companies who not only contribute the most to the planet destruction, but who also reside at the top of the economic and political pyramid. 
stop eating beef. You have power on your plate. You have ethics on your plate. You declare your allegiance to life and death by what is on your plate. You do. Yes. You do. Your compassion and character and your children's future are displayed in whatever is next to your broccoli. So, you know, take the next step. Do what you can. If you are an omnivore, go meatless one day a week. If you are meatless one day a week, make it two. If you don't eat cows, extend that compassion to pigs. If you are already plant-based, give the rest of us good recipes. <laughs> Help us gently. It's an emotional issue, so help us more gently than the way I am doing now. I have a pulpit between me. <laughs> All this only has benefit. And it is something that we can do. And I cannot for the life of me understand why we would not.